Fantastic. Well, let's grab out our Bibles. We're going to go to Romans chapter 10, continue our series through this incredible letter of the Apostle Paul. And before we do anything else, let's pray. God, just thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your mercies that are new for us today. Thank you for your scriptures that are alive, they're active, they're able to accomplish all that you send them forth to accomplish through the power of your Spirit. So, Lord, help us to come with listening ears this morning. Help us to come with uh, the soil of our hearts that's receptive to allow you to do what you desire to do. It's our heart's desire to behold you that we might become more like you and shine ever brighter as lights in this world. For the glory of your name, King Jesus. We pray these things. Amen. Amen. Romans chapter 10. It's good to see a few of you, by the way, returning from school holidays. We've returned. I was here last week, but I know some of you weren't here from a holiday ourselves. So I'm hoping that you can get up to speed with where we're at. But we've been working our way through the book of Romans. We had a bit of a pause as I was away, and we picked up last week in Romans chapter 9. I'm glad to see a few people came back because we waded the way through some really interesting theological and interesting, sometimes treacherous waters, but clearly we were all predestined to be here, and so here we are. Couldn't resist. But as we went through that chapter, we we wrestled through this notion of the sovereignty of God, and certainly on one level, it is confronting. It confronts the very need that we have. There's, there's something at the core of our humanity that desires to be in control. I want to be the master of my own ship, the commander of my own destiny. And so to think, well, that God is in control, we wrestled through that. It is confronting, but it's also exhilarating. There's an incredible invitation. And as Paul implores, particularly with his passion for his people, for the Jews... He said, here is the problem. If you view life and you live with this perspective of starting with you, you'll only ever end up with you and end up fashioning a God in your own image. Whereas if you start with God in this picture of his sovereignty, then you've started in the only possible place to find lasting and meaningful answers. Our job's not to fashion him into our image. It's allowed to allow him to fashion us into him. As C.S. Lewis said, this is all by way of review to set the scene for this morning. He says, ultimately, there's only two kinds of people, those who in the end say, thy will be done to God, or those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. And so as we discovered, this, this confronting sovereignty is also exhilarating. It's not a pervading pessimism, it's a reminder and a proclamation of a God who is in control, of his will that is being outworked. It's a proclamation with a promise that focuses us on his present purposes. We're not lost in the wilderness, left to our own devices. Will you just figure it out? We are instead anchored, centered, and encouraged by this radical reality of a sovereign God. And that's what moves us, as we concluded last week, from anxiety to peace, uncertainty to certainty, fear to faith, discouragement and disappointment to joy. 
So we set up Romans 9 as well by saying this is kind of a moment in the book where Paul pauses. He's proclaimed the gospel, what, what it is, what it means for us, what God's accomplished through us. And he takes this almost backward step then to say, well, that's the gospel, but let's place the gospel within the sovereign workings of a God throughout human history. This is what he set up in 9. As he, as he takes a step back, he says, here's what I'm convinced of, that God is sovereign, and he's sovereignly at work. And we're now going to go from that broad, overarching view. It's not going to be quite as challenging as perhaps chapter 9 is. We'll get this brief respite before another wrestle through Romans 11. But we're going to zoom back in and grab a couple of important things here. So if you're ready to go, Romans 10, get your Bible's ready, we're going to follow along. Are we alive and awake this morning? Ready to approach the Scriptures with enthusiasm and passion and readiness, I hope, to hear from the Lord. Chapter 10, verse 1, Paul speaking, brothers, he says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them being his people is that they may be saved. Now, I know it's only one verse, but just pause for a moment because I want us to grab a couple of things here. Remember, we talked about the sovereignty of God and there could be this, this sense as we unpack that, well, you know, what, what is our responsibility? Is, is there anything? Is God just going to do whatever God wants to do? But already Paul introduces here this notion of, well, that's God's sovereignty, but here's our responsibility. He says, my desire and my prayer, this is what I'm praying for. Not just taking a backward seat, well, you know, God, just do whatever God wants to do. My, my heart and my prayer, I'm longing, my desire, the passion of my heart, and this is what I'm praying for. This is Paul's prayer, is that Israel, his people, would be saved. That's, that's his genuine desire. I want to see them saved. Now just think about that, because remember, this is a people that have persecuted Paul. Paul had this method as he went about his three, three and a half, if you like, evangelical journeys, where in this process of God sending him throughout the known world of the time, or a good chunk of it, and as he went, he always brought the gospel first because of his heart and his passion to his own people. He'd go to a synagogue, he'd find the Jewish people, he'd present the gospel. Now, the pattern in nearly all instances is that they would reject and he'd move from there to the Gentiles. And he acknowledges in Roman that he feels like his call, he calls himself the apostle to the Gentiles. That's how God used him. The Gentiles readily, readily received the gospel. So this, this is a people that had rejected his message. This is a people at time who'd persecuted him, brought all sorts of accusations against him that had done him physical, mental, and emotional harm. And yet still here he's saying, my earnest desire, my plea, the longing of my heart, and my prayer before God is to see those people saved. To see those people come into the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the same salvation that he himself had experienced. And in fact, I'm going to come back to that because the, the title, if you like, for the message this morning and the theme for this is My Heart's Desire. My Heart's Desire. We're going to focus in on that. So Paul is saying, this is my heart's desire. My prayer is that they would be saved, that they would come to know this salvation. 
Why is that? Why is he so passionate about this? He's, he's talked about the sovereignty of God, talked about the gospel. This is God's planning, his election, his choosing. But then he's going to focus us back in. But, but, but my longing, the longing of my heart is that they would be saved. There's only two points. Let's read through and see what this means for Paul. Why is it his heart's desire? Why is it his prayer that they be saved? Verse 2. We're making some progress. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own way, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And Moses wrote about the righteousness that's based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteous based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because... If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. But the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him for Everyone, Jew, Greek, rich, poor, black, white, young, or everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord and only the name of the Lord will be saved. So we get this overarching umbrella. We talked about the sovereignty and he's focusing in. This is my heart's desire. My heart's desire. We could summarize it this way. He's saying because The gospel, and only the gospel, has the power to save. Could have been a moment for an amen, but we'll press on. Amen. Let's unpack that a little bit. Verse 2, he begins this way. He says, for I bear them witness, that being the Jewish people. He says, they have a zeal for God, but being ignorant, they seek to establish their own righteousness. It's the first comment he makes here. He's saying, this is part of my frustration. He's saying, I can see they have a zeal and a passion. They do. If, if anybody has a zeal, surely it is the Jewish people. I mean, they not only had the commandments of the Lord, they had 613 other commandments. They had oral traditions. They took a law like, um, they, you, know, you shall honor the, the Sabbath, keep it holy. And they introduced all of these laws about, well, we can only walk this sort of distance. We can only do these kind of act. Like they were, they were zealous to the extreme. And Paul's saying, I, I know exactly how that works. He was a zealous Jew. He was the head of his class. He was the Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was so zealous that he arrested, got imprisoned and even killed Christians who he thought were opposing his and undermining his Jewish faith and religion. He knew what it was to be zealous. But he said, what a pity they're so zealous, and yet they're zealous without knowledge. What good is all the passion and zealousness in the world if it's without truth? Now, I thought about that, and I thought, 
If ever there is another generation, other than, I know Paul's talking to particularly with Jewish people, that need to take heed to that. Surely it's this generation. Don't we live in a time and an era where it says, well, it doesn't really matter what you think, as long as you feel it, as long as the feeling really for you is, is of importance. I had a conversation with a guy this week. He came into the church. We were able to give him a bit of assistance, and I just had a chat and heard his life story. And he's like, oh, well, I'm not a religious person, but I'm deeply, deeply spiritual. In fact, he said as he progressed through these series of religious journeys, he's been on. He said, I'm now a Buddhist. And I'm up, um, as soon as I come from here, I'm heading up to the big Buddhist temple. I think it was in Wollongong or Newcastle. And I said, what is it you're seeking? Peace. So I'm seeking peace. Anyway, we had an interesting conversation. What is all the zealousness, all the feeling, all the intensity, what does it count for if it's all based on a lie? In fact, Paul goes on. He says they're they're zealous, but here is the problem, being ignorant of the truth and not according to knowledge, they've sought to establish their own righteousness. That was their problem, wasn't it? They thought somehow they could just look within. If you're just zealous and you just try harder, isn't that the message again of today? Isn't that secularism? You just, you just need to look within, look to yourself, look to what you can establish and try really hard. And you see Paul's grief. He's like, what a tragedy. What does all the zeal in the world count for if it's not based on knowledge? We're doing nothing more than entertaining a lie that leaves people helpless and without hope. So he goes on, he says, don't spend your life searching for means and methods. In fact, that's been his message all the way through Romans. He's talked about this problem that we have. We suppress the truth, the truth of who God is and what he's done. We just kind of keep it hidden. Suppress the truth for a lie. I learned something this week, just to impress you all, but... uh, been doing some, some uh, language studies. As we travelled overseas, one of the, uh, the um, shortcomings that myself and my family had was that none of us speak any languages. How many of you have ever travelled to another country and you're like, gee, I wish I'd done a bit more homework here as we especially went to some, uh, some remote little country areas and you have these interesting conversations that involve no English words. You've never been there? And you're trying to convey something, and some people were just fed up and walked away. In fact, I did have a few people I just opened up in English. I'm so sorry, I don't speak any, whatever the language is. Could you help me? And they just would walk off. But, oh, okay, that's cool, fair enough. Other people would try and, and, uh, and help you along, and you'd, you'd gesture and you know, say, well, it's this, and I'm trying to eat. And you, wouldn't, you, you would not believe how hard it was to um, try and convey a coffee with milk. If you think about it, coffee, coffee's all right, coffee with milk. I mean, what, what do you do? Do you milking cow teats? Do you, I mean, it just, it just doesn't go well, right? It doesn't, doesn't translate very well. Anyway, um, uh, who knows the definition of a chauvinist? French word? Anyone, 
Anyone know the definition of Mishabbatus? I found that out this week. That was my little piece of knowledge for you. But the word comes from Napoleon in the Battle of Waterloo, this 1815 battle where he was defeated for the first time, this great emperor. And yet there was one general in his army, one soldier by the name of Nicholas Chauvin, who continued despite the defeat of Napoleon. He, he continued to deny that Napoleon had been defeated. And he continued to fight in his own arrogance. And he fought for years. Not just people were trying to say, it's over. Stop it. It's like, no, I'm going to continue to fight. In fact, Nicholas Chauvin was the, um, the beginning of what became a chauvinist. Someone who in their pride and in their blindness and in their refusal to believe, they continue to implore the same strategies. This is what Paul is saying to his people. He's like, how can we not see this? This is a hopeless battle. He said it's not about trying to reach up or reach down the answer. I love this. It's as close as in your mouth and in your heart. And this is all it is. It's kind of the evidence. A lot of people believe this is the evidence of one of the earliest Christian creeds. If you believe in your heart, you confess in your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. You will be saved. Now, I should just clarify, that's not a, a two-step verification process. Who gets incredibly annoyed every time you try and log in something these days? They're like, we just sent a mobile to your phone and somewhere else. And the problem is my kids have got my phone scrolled away somewhere else and you've got five minutes. Anyway, it's not a two-stage verification process. The Bible says from the abundance, from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's, it's all in one. We believe. And because of the belief, we confess the outward expression of the, the inward belief. That's it. Saying there's no, there's no works. You're not working it up. You're not working it down. You're not trying to create a righteousness of your, your own. It's, it's as close as your mouth and your heart. Just believe the truth. Here it is. Believe it in your heart and confess the truth that you're believing and you will be saved. Confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's pledging allegiance, obedience, and worshiped him. He is Lord. He is the Lord of my life. What's the point here in this passage? Just as we take a step back just to review this. So Paul is saying here, after talking about the sovereignty of God, he's saying, my heart's desire is for my people to see them saved. Why? Essentially, he's saying this, because I am convinced, I am sure beyond any shadow of a doubt, that the gospel and only the gospel can save. And no zealousness, no trying, no working up, no working down. It, it doesn't count for anything. What counts is believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth that he is Lord, that he is Savior. That's the path to salvation. Because the gospel saves, believing the truth of who he is. There's no other message. There's not, there's not one way. And people get a little bit caught up in Romans 11. Paul is never trying to say, well, there's multiple ways to God. You can be Jewish or Gentile. It, it, it's not. There's one way and only one way. It's the most inclusive and exclusive message ever proclaimed. The inclusivity, the early church, it was an incredible picture of people, inclusivity, people who would never associate with one another, with Romans, 
with people from all different corners of the world, with slaves and their masters, with men and women that have no social interaction, but they all gathered together through the blood-bought gift, the blood of Jesus Christ, united together in faith, inclusive, this incredible picture of the church, the family of God, but also exclusive. This is the only way. There's no other way to salvation other than through the gospel, believing in our hearts, confessing with our mouths that he is Lord. So remember, we're we're talking about, well, Paul is saying here, my heart's desire and my prayer is for them that they might be saved. Why? Because this is the only path to salvation. Okay, that's the first part. Here's the second point, and there's only two. So bear with me. Let's keep going. Chapter 10, let's pick up. So he said, there's no distinction between Jews and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now grab this. I love this picture here. Verse 14, Romans 10. Let's think about what Paul is saying. So Paul is there, and as he loves to do, he asks some questions. He says, how how then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Really the translation is, how beautiful are the feet of those who who carry, the carriers. The the context there is, in in these particular times, the, the main means through which news traveled was through a human carrier, a carrier who would run often miles, often for days, weeks, at times it would be months. And if you'd see one of these, these uh, carriers of news who, who came, these couriers, you'd stop, you'd think, is, is this good news? Is it bad news? Are they coming to tell us that, that the enemy's being defeated and it's a victory? Are they coming to tell you? What's the news? And, and that's the picture there is how blessed are those, those people who get to carry the good news. See, it's this proclamation, isn't it, here that we've seen in Romans 9 of the undeniable re- reality that this is God's message. This is His proclamation, that this is His plan and purpose. But then here comes Paul saying it's God's message, but His means is through our proclamation. How are they going to believe if they haven't heard? How are they going to hear if nobody preaches? How are we going to preach if we don't realize and recognize that we've been sent, that we have a message to carry? But he says, oh, happy the day when there there is a messenger. What a moment that is, a messenger to bring a a proclamation of victory. What, What joy, what celebration there is. When the messenger carries that kind of news, and there's no news that is better news than the gospel, which means good news. See, it's God's message, but the means is our proclamation. In fact, he, he goes on here. Let's read on and just see the, best, the rest of what he says here. He says, how, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they've not all obeyed. Again, he's talking about his people here. They've not obeyed the gospel, this proclamation of good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? 
He's preempting perhaps their question, yeah, but what about those people who haven't heard the good news, the gospel? Well, he counters that by saying, well, the voice has gone out to the end of the earth and their words to the end of the world. And he says, well, I ask, but, but did Israel not understand? That's his second question. But maybe they heard, but they didn't really understand the message. But he says, first, Moses said, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is as bold to say, I've been found by those who did not seek me. I've shown myself to those who do not ask me. So effectively, he's saying, well, did Israel not understand? And he uses the Gentiles. He's like, well, the Gentiles, they understood. So you can't complain that you didn't understand the message. Look, the, the pagans, the, the heathens, they're caught up in all their adultery, but they received the gospel. They believed in it. So you can't claim, you who should know better, you had all the truth and knowledge, that, ah, oh, well, we heard, but we didn't really understand the message. Verse 21, but of Israel, he being God. I love this picture. He says, all day long, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. That's how he finishes this. He talks about the gospel message being proclaimed. A people who wouldn't listen, who refused and turned away, and yet there stands God with open hands. To a disobedient, to a rebellious, to a hard-hearted people, and still he stands. Still he sends his messages to proclaim the good news. He finishes with a picture of a God with wide open arms. And so here's what I take away as I read this particular passage of Scripture. As Paul is giving us some perspectives on the outworking of God's plan, salvation through human history. In the midst of the sovereignty that he's painted in, in chapter 9, as we get to chapter 10, he said, my heart is, is burning, it's longing for my people for two reasons. Number one, because I've recognized, I've realized the centrality of God's plan is the gospel. There's no other means to salvation. Number one. In fact, Paul, he, he begins Romans chapter one. If we go back to the start for those who were there, and he says, I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians. That's you and me. You might not feel very barbaric, but the Gentiles is another phrase. Those non-Jewish people, I'm in debtor to, to Greeks, to barbarians, to the wise, to unwise. This is Romans 1.14. As much as in me, I'm ready to preach the gospel to all of you who are in Rome. He says, I'm in debt to everybody. Now, I, I want us to think about this because it kind of captures a part of Paul's heart. He says, I am in debt. There's only really two ways. This is harking back to my financial background here. Maybe there's a third you can think of. There's only two ways you can be in debt. The first way is that somebody has lent you something and that puts you in debt. Now, that doesn't work here, does it? They've not lent Paul anything. The second reason that you could be in debt to somebody is if somebody has given you or gifted you something on behalf of another person. So say you, uh, you run a, a charity organization and you'd raised all of these funds for a specific need. You're in debt to those people. That's, that is the reason for which that money was given. It's for them. You're in debt. Now, that does fit the bill here. See, Paul is saying, I've received so much. I've received this grace. And therefore, there is this 
longing in my heart. I'm in debt to give away this great news, this great grace, the riches of Christ. I'm in debt. And so as much as in me, I'm ready to preach the gospel. So he says this, he says, my heart is longing for the salvation of my people because the gospel is the only message that saves. And despite his frustrations and the unbeliefs of his own people, the second point is that it's his heart desire because he's very clear that that is the passion and the purpose of this God whose arms are forever stretched wide open, inviting people to come home. He positions himself, he prays, he longs to be a witness, to proclaim the good news, going as far as to say he is a debtor. Because this is the message that matters and it saves. And I'm fully convinced that despite the hard-heartedness and rebellion of people, that that is God's will. And how blessed it is, I believe he would say, that I get to be the messenger the feet of the one who brings that good news. The war is over. We read it. He's done it all. He's nailed your sins to the cross. He's made a way. He's triumphed. He's made a public spectacle of the evil one. And he's brought us in to his everlasting life. Could I get... uh, Who's coming up? Ali's coming back up. Team's coming back up. Romans 10. The gospel. (laughs) My heart's desire. Because this is the message that matters. And this is the heart of the one who's rescued and redeemed me. And I want to finish this by asking us that question. You know, what? How would you finish that sentence? You're reading that, not knowing the rest, as Paul says. He says, this is my heart's desire. This is my heart's desire. How would you fill in the blank? This is my heart's desire for a nice pizza for lunch. This is my heart's desire just to live a a comfortable life. This is my desire to have a family. This is my desire to, to make money, to accomplish things, to... I'm not saying any of those are bad things. But I'm bringing us back to this reality of the man, Paul, who was driven by something bigger and greater than all of those things. Shouldn't there be in our hearts, shouldn't there be some kind of a desire for others around us to encounter the love and the grace and the mercy that we ourselves have encountered. And I'm asking myself here, I think if ever there's not, there's one of two things that's gone wrong is that either we've forgotten the power of the gospel, either we've settled ourselves to the the kind of worldly thinking The world that says, well, that's fine for you, but it's not really for me as long as I'm just passionate in whatever I pursue. That's good enough. That's good enough for God. It's good enough. Like, we just go our own. We just agree to disagree. Maybe we've bought into that. Either it's we've forgotten that the power that 
Paul gives to the gospel, saying it's only this message. People are perishing, but only this message can save. Nothing we can do. Or maybe it's not the power, but at times, sometimes it's that passionate heart of God. I've got a story that I, I often tell. came across the preaching actually recently of a guy, J.D. Greer, Baptist preacher. And uh, he, he has this line he always talks about. He says, a, a good story is not told, it's stewarded. Stewarded. And so, in fact, they have a bit of an inside joke. He says at their church that you can know how long you've been in the church by how many times you've heard his illustrations. You've heard that one twice, okay, you've been here two years. You've heard that one five times. That's great. You're part of the family. So that gives me a little bit of liberty to repeat some of these stories as we go. But there was this, um, just this moment that always reminds me of the heart of the gospel. God uses it. Just reminded again this week. But we had this moment with um, one of my girls when we just moved out of town and bought this block of land. She was five years old at the time, and the block kind of goes up into some steep mountain areas. I was doing some fencing in the middle, middle of winter, that kind of beautiful, freezing, can't feel your toes and fingers, Canberra winter weather. It was five o'clock. It was kind of dusk time. We're up there just doing some fencing at the back, and she, she was always my best helper. I don't know if anyone else just has one child that just loves to be your little daddy's little shadow as you go around and daddy's little helper. So she was there with me. We'd been out there for about an hour. I said, sweetheart, it's getting dark. I'm freezing cold and I'm going to just finish this up and head in. Okay, dad, yeah, yeah, no worries. So I finished up what I was doing and looked around. I couldn't actually see her, so I figured she'd wandered back to the house. So I headed back to the house and uh, my wife, come in the door, my wife says, where's the child? I thought, oh, no, Where, she's not back. I thought she'd come back. And then all of a sudden by that stage, you have this kind of panicked thought of it's dark. It's like mine is something ridiculous. It had begin, you know, begun to sleet. It's freezing cold. She's not going to survive 10 minutes out there in the bush by herself. And what had happened was we had two dogs at the time and she'd been there and one of the dogs had headed off after something. Who knows what dogs chase? And so she was worried about the dog. So she'd headed off after the dog and completely lost away. She's lost out there in the mountains. And I tell you what, that does something to the heart of a father. I tell you what, I'm in that moment. My little girl is up in the bush. And I just, I had that thought. Like it was, didn't have to think about it. It wasn't even a thought. It was just, I am gone. You know, it, it does not matter what it costs. It does not matter how much time it takes. It does not matter what hurdles I've got to jump over. My little girl needs to be found. She is lost. She's not going to make it on her own. And so I did. I was up there. I called everyone I could call. Like there was an army of people looking for this little girl. As it turned out, she wandered up. And there happened to be a couple of blocks down, some of our neighbors there who were up the back of the hill deer hunting. And they'd seen this little girl and this dog calling for help. And they'd got her. They'd walked down the road walked back up the road, seen this commotion going on, I think, and brought her up. And I'll tell you what, the moment I stood there at the top of that long driveway and I saw my little girl. And I wasn't standing still, just thinking, oh, I'll just wait. And, you know, you know, what were you thinking? You know, running off? None of that. Man, I was, I was there. I was running. 
I was embracing this little girl. Like, I'm never letting you out of my arms again. And, and I always tell that story, and the Lord uses that to remind me that this is the heart. It's not just some kind of like intellectual, theoretical. It's a God who stands with his arms wide open to a disobedient people, this passionate heart of a God who's so loved. And I think you capture that and you don't even think about it. That's kind of where I want to land this morning. So often you hear a message like this and it's like, right, got to get back to the works, got to evangelize three times a week. Got to... And I'm not saying there's not methods that we use. But I'm saying if we don't get the heart right, it doesn't matter what we do. I think that's so important for us. Rather than works, it's coming back to that place of worship and wonder, of recognizing who he is. If, if you were in that situation as me, I guarantee you don't, you don't think about it. There's no father, there's no mother who thinks, my little girl's lost, well, should I do it? Let me just theoretically think through. Let me make sure my, uh, my speech is prepared. I've got to make sure it's... You, you, are, you are out there in your underpants. Like, it doesn't matter. In the freezing cold, whatever it costs, I am there. How much more so if you're the little girl, if you're that little girl who's been rescued, but you know that there's other little girls who still need to be rescued, how much more is your heart then compelled? I was reminded as well of, um, I'll finish with this, sorry, going on. It's the third, third amen, third conclusion. I remember in my late teens was the moment where um, I was just radically saved, encountered the Lord, living a, a godless lifestyle, just looking for the next high, doing whatever selfish thing I could indulge in, radically met the Lord. And I remember two things so profoundly. I've told the story before, so I'm not going to labor it again. But two things in that moment. One was this incredible salvation of a God who loved me, so overwhelmed with that. But in the very next breath, the very day that I encountered the Lord, I was like, this, this is too good. It's too amazing. How could I not go and share this with other people? I didn't have the words then. I was a you know, baby Christian. All, all I did was play a bit of guitar. And literally, this is what I did. I went in the city. I lived in Canberra. I was one of those crazy Christian guys on the corner just singing songs to Jesus. I'm like, I, I don't know. I've, just, I've got to do something. I've got to just proclaim his name. I've got to tell someone about him. Like it. It was, it was not like, a again, some theological process. It was, I've encountered his heart and I'm so overwhelmed by his love for me and I've just got to give it away. And so I don't want to call us to works and maybe that's what God calls you to do. He says, well, here's what... But what I definitely want to call us to is a fresh place of wonder and worship. If we could just see him again, if we could experience that Father who runs in the midst of our mess and embraces us, if, if that was the place we lived, so much, if not everything, would just fall in the place out of that. Paul's encouragement stories. Don't forget the power and the importance of the gospel. But don't forget the heart. How blessed it is that 
we've encountered this good news, we get to come and give that good news away to others. Can we stand? So I want to pray for us. We're going to sing and just worship. And really, that's the invitation this morning. Just sing this song about building our lives upon his love and being a people that he then sends out to give that love to others. And I'm praying as we just worship and sing this that, that there is that, that call back, that rekindling of worship and wonder. There's an opportunity this morning for ministry. Maybe that you want to just come and kneel up front, just surrender your life afresh, just ask God to do something new in your heart and your life. Maybe that you've come this morning specifically looking for prayer. So just as the worship plays, love for the work, the prayer teams to come forward. If you're in a place this morning and you have never surrendered your life to Christ, you've been on the on the verge kind of examining the truth and even this morning as you've been here something in you that's like yes I I want to make today that, that confession there's there's no sweeter there's no more wonderful place than to come and step into the arms of the grace and the mercy of your heavenly father there's an invitation this morning come and see me I'd love to lead you in that here this morning and you're like, you know what, I just need a fresh touch. God, I just need, I just realize I'm going through the motions. I've lost that heart. Just come forward and receive prayer. Someone lay hands on you. Bless you. Prayer of Paul that the eyes of your heart would be opened and enlightened to see the wonder His grace, His mercy majesty. If you need physical healing this morning, there's other needs, there's an opportunity as well to just come and receive prayer. So let's worship together. Let's sing this song. If you want to respond, as I said, you can come and kneel. You can come and receive prayer. Let's just do business with the Lord as we conclude the service. When you're ready, it's fellowship. Come and coffee for those who want to hang around. But let's linger a little in the presence of the Lord's plate on him. Let's worship him. Let's see what he wants to do and respond as he leads us to this morning.